the keys to personal growth, I think, is remaining true to who you are. If you don't do that, and then how would you know you're growing? You might be growing into someone you're not. I need to go 20 years back and find myself there. You see so many people going through that, and I'm always like, I don't want to be that person. I want to have people around me that know me, that will help me ground myself. I want to be able to ground myself and say, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be the best at this. I don't want to be the best public servant. I want to be the best storyteller. I could have stayed in Canada, become deputy minister in 5, 10, 15 years. But then I would get there and I would hate myself. I'd be like, you know what? I always knew I wanted to be this and this is not who I am. Then I would be 50 years old coming back, trying to tell stories. Outside of being consistent, is being grounded and remaining true to yourself and your mission. Africa X. Create your life. Create your life. Beautiful people, this is the Create Your Life series, and you are listening to our special series, Africa X, which is focused on conversations and experiences with experts from Africa, in Africa, about Africa. And I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. Today, we have that guy in the studio. He's a close friend, but a better person. He's a storyteller, entrepreneur, community builder, whose ingenuity, creativity, and faith in humanity has allowed him to carve a life of passion, vision, and enduring, inexhaustible love for the continent of his birth. He is the founder and CEO of Tap Media, which is a pan-African media platform that tells African stories from an African perspective with the mission to rebrand Africa. Love that. One story at a time. In 2017 alone, Tap reached over 7 million Africans. His company, Tap, has worked with organizations and institutions such as the African Union, the United Nations Development Program, African Institute of Mathematical Sciences, the next Einstein Forum, Indus Sportswear, Uber, Albany Associates, helping them all to tell better stories of the work that they do in Africa. And most recently, TAP launched its 18th issue, the podcast Takeover, which was a pleasure to work on with this amazing gentleman. To create your life family, I'm talking about none other than Mr. Moses Ross Mutabaruka. Ross, please say hello to the Create Your Life family, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Kev. My pleasure. It's been a long time coming. I'm glad that we are here and we get to talk. No, definitely, bro. Like, it's funny. We met, I think, in 2021. You actually did some of the first best photos that I ever had in Africa, for sure, through Tap Media. And actually, man, I use those photos all the time. So Create Your Life family, if you ever see a photo of me smiling with a white shirt on or the one with the black shirt, that was Ross and his company who made me look good. So thank you for that, my brother. For real. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Uh, I think we actually met probably 2019. Did we meet in 2019? Yeah, it's been a minute. Where? We met at Marv's birthday party because I remember it was before COVID, right? But that was 2021. Yeah, that was 2021 because in 2019, I met Marvin a flight going to Kigali for the Africa Tech Summit. So I don't know. Okay, if we okay, met okay, yet. okay, okay. All right, all right. No, no, no. It's all good. It's all good because I was wondering. COVID, COVID. <laughs> COVID fog. Um, man, Ross, I recently found out that you were actually Rwandan. Like, after after knowing you for a couple of years, bro, I thought you were Kenyan this whole time. Your Swahili is on point and everything like that, bro. What has your journey to Kenya been like? I know it's full of life and of story, but bro, how did you end up in Kenya as a Rwandan? I can't blame you. Sometimes I forget I'm Rwandan also. I've been in Kenya for so long. I think I came here when I was eight, nine. I was born in Rwanda and then during the 94 genocide, I left. I was in Congo, in Tanzania, but I settled in Kenya. So I've been in Kenya since 96 and 
then I was here for about 12 years. And then I went to school in Canada. And then when I was done with that part of the world, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go back home. And because I grew up here, I went to school here, I went to primary school here, high school here. It's where I knew it. Was, I have an extensive network of friends, some of them that became family. So I was like, let me come back and settle here. Most people, because they've known me for so long since I was a kid, technically, and I grew up here. At some point, I was speaking Kikuyu. I went to school in Western part of Kenya. I speak the Luya. My Sheng is on point. I grew up in a place, Lovington North, otherwise called Kawangware. So, you know, I've been on the ground for a minute. So that's the beauty of Kenya and Nairobi, actually, that there's so many people who call this place home. People have friends from Ethiopia who are Kenyans, guys from Somali, people from South Sudan, Burundi, Congo, you name it, people. Kenya did a good job in hosting its neighbors. There's a lot of people that sort of find their home in, in Kenya. Yeah. Love that, yeah. A lot of us. I found my home in Kenya also. <laughs> What's your Kenyan name? Man. <laughs> so, Kimani is one of them. I think one of the homies called me Oching. That's my little name. Kimani is my Kuyu name. Those are my names. You said something, bro, that what caused you to leave Rwanda was the genocide. Yeah. Can you expand a little bit more about how the genocide impacted you and your family specifically? For those of our listeners who may not be familiar with what took place at that point in time in Rwanda. Next day is going to be 30 years later. We young kids, I was just going to class one. Me and my siblings had just been baptized. You know, we were kind of now becoming, you're going to school for the first time. You're getting to know your peers, your country, your neighborhood. And then the genocide started. So it was genocide against the Tutsis. Actually, it's important to be clear. And really, as a child, as a kid, your life just goes upside down. Some of us who lived through those times, who saw the guys that were just playing football outside, getting thrown out of their houses, getting killed, and then to go through that mayhem and then to cross over into Congo and to witness another mayhem. I think people forget that probably the biggest war of the last few decades outside of the World War, I almost said century, it happened in the Great Lakes, it happened in Congo, Rwanda, that today over 5 million people died out of that war. And so to be a child and to live through those times, man, it's been so heavy. And that's part of why also for the longest time, I really hated Rwanda. I didn't want to accept that I was Rwanda and I didn't want anything to do with that. That's because of the trauma and the scar that does to you when you are like seven, eight years old and you're having to witness dead bodies in the street. You're having to see, see bombs and all these things. You're having to have everything that you know wiped out one day and you have no context of what's going on. You just hear some guy died on the radio and so people are killing each other and your mother is crying and is taking you from one place to the next, hiding you and people are like no, we can't hide him. And then you start oh what's wrong with me why can people not take me in you know so that thing was actually very very serious that it took me 22 years to be able to go back so I would come back to Kenya here. I would have friends go. People were like, oh, there's this festival happening. There's this thing going on. It's just an hour and a half flight to Rwanda. But the mental block of just not being able to cross over that fear and face it. I'm very happy that in the last few years, I've been able to face that fear and face that past direct. I've been able to look the devil in the eye and go back to my roots and go back in these places that I remember in such a dark way and experience them in a different way. One of the biggest trauma I had, which also now when I look back, influenced my relationship with uh, religion. So the journey that happened like a week or two after I just got baptized. And you know, in the African way, when you're such a young boy, young, such a young guy, especially when you're the firstborn son of your family, I wanted someone to be my godfather, but my dad was like, no, 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 you're going to choose this 
guy, their godfather. Apparently, it's also a bit of strategic interest. <laughs> the guy I wanted to be my godfather was my cousin, my older cousin, who was cool, would come get me on weekends, would like go watch these football games. He had learned how to drive as a little boy and seeing like, okay, you have this bigger guy, uh, this big brother. I was like, yeah, this is my guy. This is the guy I want to be my godfather. And, you know, long story short, the guy that ended up becoming my godfather, when the genocide started, less than two weeks, refused to hide me. Wow. Uh, and so I remember that being so vivid and so deep and how much trauma it gave me. Last year, my cousin's youngest son was getting baptized and he chose me to be his godfather. I hadn't been to church in like 10 years, but it felt like such a full circle moment that I was like, wow. Wow, this is some calling. This is some other thing. And so I had to go back and relive this moment. And I think for me, it was the last healing thing I had to do when it comes to that part of my journey and my history. And so with the 30th anniversary coming up next year in April, I've never felt better. Of course, during those months, the April to June, people who are there and people who witness a lot of terrible things that happen, you still get all these nightmares and things and it's hard to sleep. I don't think that part really ever goes away. But the other part of now, like facing that history and talking about it, I think it took over 20 something years just for us in our family to be able to sit down and talk about what happened. And the people deal with these things very individually. And me personally, I never spoken about it or even wrote about it. Even mm. today, I think this is the first time I'm going that deep into it. Wow, bro. I feel like I've just made your podcast decide. I think that what you did is you were vulnerable and real. And thank you for sharing that with us. So I didn't know too much about the genocide. Like I remember people in my family or peers talking about Hotel Rwanda, but I never actually saw it. And then in 2019, I actually went to the museum and it was an experience. Me and my homegirl, Peniel, we had went. Bro, it was eye-opening for me because I didn't know. It was just reading it, just understanding I was in awe. I didn't know. I was like, how could I not have known also, right? Which was a big thing. Honestly, you might be the first person who I've actually like outright asked because I didn't know if it was okay, you know what I mean, to ask and stuff like that. So thank you for sharing and for being vulnerable with us in regards to your experience. Yeah, man. I don't know, bro. I want to hug you. Yeah, hug you? <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay. Real spit, man. Uh, thank you for being here. I know you're good people, but you know, you're taking your time, man, and being vulnerable and open like that, bro. I think it's the first time I've been that detailed about that story. It's something that we all avoid for so long. And sometimes I feel like I'm such a hypocrite. I have a lot of friends who've been struggling for so long and different people deal with this thing differently. A lot of people drink, a lot of people become extremists in one area of their life. And so I've been pushing people to speak about these things more, to go to therapy. Often I look at myself, I'm like, you haven't been to therapy. You don't really speak about this much with people. I mean, I write about these things a lot. Writing is my first creative outlet. So I have like this notebook and this digital stuff that I write about these things, but I never really speak to people about it. Well, thank you, bro. Thank you for including us. You journey to transparency and talking about this. I'm going to switch it up a little bit, get us a little bit lighter. <laughs> I got you. I got you. So you went to college in Canada. How was that experience for you? What inspired you to come back home to Africa? So yes, I went to college in Canada, not only to college, because I'd been like a refugee for like so long, 11, 12 years. My family applied with these other countries and Canada chose us. And so my initial experience in Canada was great in the sense that for the first time I had stability, I had papers, I was documented, I was a person. So Canada was good in the sense 
of grounding me and grounding us and saying like, okay, now you can go to school. Now you can have two, three meals a day and now you can experience life as a normal human, as a person, as a normal human being. But before I went to Canada, I always knew I wanted to come back. I was going to come back to the continent. I always tell people when I was younger, I wanted to be a lawyer so that I can sue the UN because I was just so angry about how things were run, how so many people were ignored and living outside of the system almost. I remember telling my friend, I'm going to go to Canada. I'm going to go to school. Then maybe I'm going to work for a bit and then I'm going to be back. I want to come back and help in a way. I didn't know how. I was still very young. Help in one way or the next solve these problems that we have on the continent. So I went with that mindset. And luckily, when I went to Canada, I discovered my purpose or what I wanted to do in life. Mainly because, again, you go to Canada as a kid that grew up in refugee camps in the slums of Nairobi without ever having a radio, a TV, a magazine. I had never seen, I had never touched a magazine. We had never owned a radio or a TV in our home. And so you go and have Google in your home now. You're going to school that has a library. You can go and search things. You can go and read things. And then for the first time ever, you get to Canada and people are like, oh, the black guy. You're like, no, I'm Kenyan. What do you mean with the black guy? And then you say, oh, you're from Kenya also. Can you run? Did you live next to a lion? Like, okay. Actually, I'm from Rwanda. Like, oh, and now everybody start crying for you. Like, oh my God, Hotel Rwanda, are you okay? Oh, da, da, da. Let's invite you to our home. I remember when I went to uni, the first course we did in uni was an English course and you had to write an essay about yourself or something. I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but the next day the teacher came out crying and said, oh, I had spoken to my husband and I think he knows what someone like you is going through and dealing with. You must go see a psychologist. I feel like box. I went to my sister. Oh, my teacher wants me to see a psychologist. She's like, oh, what happened to you? What did you tell them? So that shock of now seeing how people view you and view the world and view you within the world. Quickly enough, you adapt and you accept that you're a black man because when people see you on the street, they don't know you're from Kenya. They see a black guy walking down the street. You're black, you know? Before you know you reading about all these stereotypes of Africa, poverty, corruption, disease, war, distraction. I went to a very tiny city in Canada. It was called London, Ontario. At the time, it was very, very small. We're in high school and it's a weekend. The guys are like, we're going to go out. I'm like, I'm going to drive you guys. They're like, just came from Africa. How can you drive? Yeah, I'm like, bruh, I can drive in Nairobi. There's only like three stop signs in this city. Like, what do you mean I can't drive? <laughs> that frustration, because from when I was young, I think I started selling things on the street from like age of eight. I was always entrepreneurial. I was always a problem solver. I hate complaining. I, I hate to find myself in a space where I feel like I can't do anything. So that happened my last year of high school when I went to uni. Even like you had university, you're supposed to be at a space of high thoughts and high thinkers and all these things. But the narrative about Africa was still the same, probably even worse because the academic surrounding Africa and people of African descent is really terrible. There's not that much that academic says we've done. I found that to be a challenge. And so I went on a whole phase where I was complaining about how BBC and CNN and all these people write and talk about Africa. And then one time it hit me and like, okay, you didn't go to journalism school. You're not a journalist, but you can write. If you don't like what other people are talking about you or your country or your continent, do something about it. And so that's how actually 
actually tap, which is the African perspective, started. No, I love that, bro. The great origin story. I feel like I'm talking to right. No, bro. This is what we're here for, man. Like our listeners, they need to hear how you became who you are because they might be going through something similar or might have some similar experiences and they need to understand how to persevere through those, right? I have a question for you because something that you said kind of hit home for me. When your sister found out what you had written, what did she tell you to do? My family has always been a bit not protective, but they kind of know that I went through some shit. And so, especially for my mother, even I realized this much later on, she would always be like, are you okay? Are you okay? This whole thing, are you okay? Are you okay? You know, like, ah, I'm good. Why are you guys trying to treat me like I have some mental or some disability or something? But I guess they kind of understood that it wasn't normal because I was kind of the age where you can see and know and see things. I wasn't too young and I wasn't too old, too old to put it into perspective. My sister, I guess, was a bit wiser than me. She was like, oh, no, she doesn't know much about, she just read something you wrote. She doesn't know much about you to diagnose you almost. Like my sister was studying nursing, medical field. And so she was kind of wary, like don't give too much. First day, she only, she hasn't met you. She wants to meet you, she will meet her, but don't go too deep buying into someone might think of you or say of you just from reading something that you wrote. And then I got my paperback. I didn't write anything very graphic, only that I was from Rwanda. I'd been in a refugee camp that I'd found an opportunity in Canada and that I was going to go back to the continent one day and do something there. Love that. And you wrote that at what age? I was 19. I was in first year of uni. Okay. Yeah, bro, yeah. Well, number one, how old were you when you went to Canada? I was... 17. 17. Okay. Got you. Got you. So for me, and I'm not comparing my experience to your experience at all, right? I grew up in foster care in the States from nine months until I was 18. But I remember one time I told people that I was a foster child and we got the looks. So it was me and my older sister. We got the looks. We got the, I feel sorry for you and all of that stuff. When my sister found out that I had told people that we was foster kids. Boy. See, I didn't know how you was going to say that your sister, oh, my sister, she was not happy. I was little. She could beat me then. So she definitely beat me up and gave me a good talking to. And she was just like, you keep your business personal. So that's what I was wondering if your sister had said the same thing, because that was a parallel for me. Like I grew up, you know, ashamed of that fact. Even still now, people will try to like box you in or tell you that you were this or that. It's something that I'm not ashamed of anymore, but definitely not something that I lead with. Right. Strategic sharing is what they call it. Strategic sharing. Just sharing some of these things now. The Rwandans are known for being reserved. We keep our cards in our pocket. We are very, hi, sir. How are you doing? You ask me something, I answer what you ask me. I don't go about telling you my whole life, my whole day. That's also a bit of the reason why most of us struggle because we don't speak about these things. We don't come out with these things. When I lived here in Kenya for 11, 12 years, I would try to hide as much as possible because even then there was a taboo of being a Kimbizim. Kimbizim is a refugee in Swahili. And then when people hear about, oh, you're from Rwanda, like, oh my God, you guys, you killed each other. You're like, when you go to Canada and the West, uh, even more, it's very dramatized. And so I would always avoid, even to this day, people be like, oh, you should write a book. You should do this. You should do that. I'm like, all I have now is just a sad story. <laughs> I think you got more than that. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. 
it's been going on for so long that for I wasn't doing interviews. I think I've just done like first interviews last year or the year before that. I would try as much as possible not to get on the other side of the camera or the story so that I don't have to talk about these things. You know, it's all in the evolution of it, right? I could speak to that too, but there's some power in it if you're able to, I would say, digest it responsibly. It's one of those things where you say, you know, like this is where a large part of my character or my purpose and my drive comes from. Oh yeah. Right? Oh yeah. And so like that's a real Thing, at least for me, I can only speak for myself. Wow, Create Your Life family, I hope that you are really enjoying this episode. I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsors and let you know that our sponsors are giving special offers just for you. If you are a fellow busy podcaster who just wants to record and spend the rest of your time doing what you love, like working out at the gym with family and friends or traveling, use code CYLS for a discount on services when you go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. Tell us about Tap Media, what it entails, and how exactly you got it off the ground. And this magazine is fire. So, like, talk to us, bro. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Before I forget, when I started Tap, I didn't know what I was doing, really. I was just angry that this is how people that look like me and the continent was portrayed. And I was just tired of complaining. I couldn't see myself complaining about, oh, the BBC says this, the CNN says the BBC is a British broadcasting corporation. They have their agenda. They're speaking for the British audience. So who's speaking for Africa or for Africans? And so it's a very humble beginning. Starts out as Facebook note. I would write like notes about facts and things about Africa. And then a friend of mine, Albert, so he's like, bro, I like this. I want to make you a blog. I was like, what is a blog? Back then, like people didn't know what a blog was. So he's like, oh, what colors do you like? He asked me what this question the next thing I know you're sending me all this login details like now you have a blog so you can write your things there and you put it there and so of course I would write stuff put them there and then he'd be like did you go behind and see like people are reading these things like you should write more and then it would go like a week or two before I uh, wrote something else and people would be like sending me messages like hey how come you didn't put out something this week I'd be like I only write when I'm angry I didn't see something that made me angry <laughs> <laughs> And then they started being like, okay, so if you're not writing this, can I write? And then you put it there. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, the term was actually coined, you know, the African perspective. So it's not Ras, or it's not Moses' perspective, it's the African perspective. All views, all ideas are welcome. And so the blog started out, kicked off, I think it was probably like the first one in Canada in about African stories about Africa in general. This is probably 2013. It's still like a blog. It's nothing. I'm doing my job. I have all these other things going on. But but then we started getting invited to, there's an event, there's festivals, there's something like, oh, you guys want to come and be part of this, cover this? So slowly and slowly, I'm like, oh, this could become something. At that time, I'm also thinking about what do I want to do with my life? Because I've graduated, I'm working, I'm in my phase of I'm giving back to Canada type of thing. And then I get a mentor, one of my big brothers, Shadra Kabango, probably like one of the biggest artists in Canada. I'm asking him all these questions like, bro, how do you do this? How do you do that? How you do this? How you do that? He's like, you know, I should talk to my older sister. She helps entrepreneurs figure out their ideas. 
So he introduces me to Charity, his big sister. And Charity is like, first of all, you're doing too much. This is not going anywhere. You need to kill this whole thing or you need to focus on one thing. You can't be writing about politics, sports, business, music, entrepreneurship, science. You are confusing people and this is not sustainable. So I go back and I'm like, oh man, I can't kill this. I love all these things. I'm versatile. I enjoy all these things. I want them to have a home there. And so I called her back. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to kill the whole thing, but I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to make a magazine. So instead of writing regularly, weekly or bi-weekly, I'm going to take like two, three months, package all these things together and release them as a magazine. That's awesome. So yeah, so then you go in the phase of magazine. Once it was a magazine, the platform was bigger. The interest was bigger. We started having partnerships with like the McGill University, with Harvard, with all these African business conferences or forum at this Ivy Leagues. We would be there. We would be doing a lot of things in the community. And then about 2018, I was working on one of the issues. And then I realized the magazine highlights a lot of creatives and entrepreneurs. And Africa has really big issues and big problems. I was like, we need hardcore scientists, mathematicians who can help us solve food insecurity issues, health and disease issues, who can help us build infrastructures, technical and otherwise. I started asking myself, how many African scientists do we know? And I couldn't name two. I had at least, I would just go through my phone and call a bunch of my friends. Hey, how many African scientists do you know? And none of them would name two or three. And so I was like, this is a problem. The only African scientist I knew was a guy called Neil Turok, which is a white South African scientist that I'd met. He's one of the best in the world in Cosmologist? Cosmology, yeah. Oh, yeah, With yeah, stars yeah, yeah, yeah. and the Big Bang. So yeah, I used yeah, to ask yeah, yeah. him, Neil, what bang? <laughs> <laughs> this whole big bang theory. Well, they, t- tell me what bang. What the bang then? Where did this bang happen? Yeah, when did the bang happen? That's when, for the first time, I was like, you know what? I want to make a documentary about science in Africa. And so that was now my entry into visual storytelling. And boy, since then, we haven't looked back. So that's kind of like the long form journey of tap. Really something that started out of a frustration to fix this problem and issue I was seeing. And this is like, what, 10 years ago? Telling African stories wasn't sexy, wasn't popular. Not many people were doing it. I would tell guys like, oh, I want to start a storytelling platform. I want to change the narrative about how people talk about Africa. And they would be like, in top five problems Africa has, is that even like top 50? People didn't really see or appreciate the power of stories and how that can help weave different things together. If people see you differently, they treat you different, they engage with you different. For me, if you ask me, that's more than if you're giving me five bucks or 50 bucks or a million bucks. If you're going to give me an opportunity, if you're going to see me as a person, I would choose that any day. I love that. I think it's important too, right? Like see me as a person. Don't give me money. See me as a person. I mean, you can give me money too. Yeah. See me as a person. <laughs> <laughs> so before working on TAP full time, you spent five years working as a public servant in the Department of Innovation, Science and Economic Development in Canada, where you received two back-to-back deputy minister awards of merit for service to Canadians. How was that experience for you? And it was a great experience. When I went to Canada, I'll always say I'll always be grateful for Canada for giving a young troubled refugee child some stability, a ground to run on. Canada has a lot of problems, many, many issues, deep racism, institutional issues, part of it, which is why I couldn't stay there longer, which is why I came back. But when I went to uni, I started out doing business administration. And at some point I figured like the type of business I was learning, there's no way I was going to come and apply it here. It's kind of like the business you do when you're going to inherit a farm from your dad or you're going to go work for the Mackenzies and the likes. And no offense, but I didn't see myself there. And so I was like, what can I do to give back to this country, to give back to the people of Canada, but also learn? 
learning about things I can use in the future. One of the things that we struggle with on the continent is governance. So I was like, you know, I would like to know how I was in Ottawa. Ottawa is the administrative capital city of Canada. For college, right? Yeah, college. And then I got once and I saw Canada Public School of Service was probably one of the best in the world. See all these people from Asia, from South America, from Africa come to learn about how public service works. I was like, oh, let me learn about this. And then maybe I would know something about governance. I want to know why the government invests in this road and not the next, why they build this school and not the next. I want to understand policy. I want to know why things happen, how they happen. So I went through that. I worked for the government for the longest time. I started out as admin assistant. And by the time I was leaving, I was one of the chief of staff in the deputy minister's office. Yeah. Hey, we know how to hustle. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. I mean, shoot, when I read your bio and stuff, it said the hustle started in the refugee camp. Were you selling the cigarettes, man, and, you know, making it happen, huh? Yeah, we've been hustling. We've been hustling for a while. And so working for the government, having like a front row seat of how government works, I would walk from my office to the prime minister's office. At some point, I was running the intergovernmental committees on like innovation, on investment. And so I would sit here and see all these guys in terms of like how they're thinking like 40, 50 years from now, how they are repairing and renovating the country's infrastructure, how they are getting ready for emergencies. Like, oh, if something happened, if half of Canada was flooded, what's going to happen? Who's going to be in charge? I'm be sitting there, I'm like, wow, this guy is there ahead. So it was such an eye-opening experience. The thing I didn't like about that is also that you go into these organizations and institutions expecting different, expecting that, oh, corruption, nepotism only happen in developing countries or in Africa. And you get in there and you also find that it's a big boys club. You work for this director and stack up until they become a director general, an executive director, an associate director, deputy minister, a deputy minister. Everybody moves and they bring 10, 15 people with them. And so when you're young and you're black, and at the time, I think Canada didn't even have an associate deputy minister, which there's like probably 400 of them. It didn't have a black one until three years ago, three, four years back. And so at some point when I got to where I was, I was like, you know what? I think I've hit the ceiling. I would either have to now start forcing myself into this club of people going fishing on ice, going, I don't know, golfing to really be in this club, which likely will never be accepted. That's part of what I didn't like. I would see people who are smart, young black women being forced to train people to take their job. And that didn't really sit well with me. But yeah, I was always keen to give back to Canada. Even when COVID happened, I was actually called to come back and be part of a committee that was coordinating the response, which, I mean, I was working like 15, 16 hours a day, but it was worth it at the end. I'll always have a soft spot for Canada. And I think if I went to Canada today, I would have a completely different experience than when I went there. And there were only like two, three black kids in a school of like 800 people. Well, I think you also have contributed to people having a better experience, right? With the example that you set, with the things that you did in leadership, with all of the awards that you won, I think that you made it a better Canada for people of color, of African descent. As I was reading your bio and I was doing my research on you, I'm like, yo, award after award. In addition to those mentioned earlier, right, in our interview so far, you've also won an award from the Canadian Association of Rwanda's Youth, which is called CARI. You run an entrepreneur 
Entrepreneurship Award in 2014 and the 2018 No Limit Awards for Entrepreneurship and Community Leader of the Year. What do these awards particularly mean to you? I think the one you've just mentioned, the Kerry one, the Canadian Association of Rwandan Youth Award, meant the most because my relationship with Rwanda wasn't always, I don't even know how to put it because it was such an extreme relationship. When we were there and we were in uni and we formed an organization called Kerry that still exists today that has a bunch of chapters and when they decided to honor me, there's nothing like being honored by your own people. So that's one of my favorite awards to this day. And just to see the young people can come together and choose to be different and choose to work together and choose to create a better future. Before I left the government of Canada, I had brought into government at least eight people from my community. That's still one of the proudest things about my experience in Canada is that before I left the institution, I wanted to at least make sure that my community can get a yearly income of like half a million dollars. I'm not only going to bring these people into like entry jobs, but I'm going to make sure that they're in places where they can grow and scale and they can make money and buy homes and build and have a better future for themselves. And so that community element and being recognized by your community, nothing beats that. I love that for you, bro. You're a natural born leader, an entrepreneur, man. It's a pleasure to know you as a leader and someone who has, I would say, rose into the occasion or accepted the challenge of being a leader, being a dynamic person. How do you make sure that you stay rejuvenated and focused as a leader on a continuous basis? I'm still a work in progress on that. One of the things I'm learning to do more, as simple as it sounds, to say no. I had an opportunity to come to our desk just last week that was really, really good. But I was like, there is no way I'm putting myself and my team through this work, knowing so well what we've just gone through in the last month. Uh, and just being able to say no to that opportunity. The next day you're like, we should have just taken it on. Give it to someone else. We brought in more people. And like, you start to like judge yourself so much, but just the fact that just being able to say no to things, even good things that would otherwise interfere with your focus and your notes that in terms of like, okay, this is what we want to do. We got to stay focused on this to get to what we want to do and not being able to bring in distraction, good or bad. I think focus, yeah. Other than consistency, what would you say are your keys to personal growth? The keys to personal growth, I think, is remaining true to who you are. If you don't do that, and then how would you know you're growing? You might be growing into someone you're not. I like all of these things, but it's not me. I need to go 20 years back and find myself there. You see so many people going through that, and I'm always like, I don't want to be that person. I want to have people around me that know me, that will help me ground myself. I want to be able to ground myself and say, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be the best at this. I don't want to be the best public servant. I want to be the best storyteller. I could have stayed in Canada, become deputy minister in 5, 10, 15 years. But then I would get there and I would hate myself. I'd be like, you know what? I always knew I wanted to be this and this is not who I am. And I would be 50 years old coming back trying to tell stories. And so I think outside of being consistent is being grounded and remaining true to yourself and your mission. It's not as easy or simple as it sounds. Once you get in the game, there's so many things happening that it's so easy to get sidetracked. Sidetracked. Yeah. And that's one thing that I appreciate about you. Whenever I see you, your demeanor is always calm. You always are, I would say, authentic. When I see you, I know that the love is genuine. Bro, it's always fun seeing you. Even when we had the last house party, yo, it was a vibe. When you came through, 
even when I see you out, like I know that you're grounded and you're comfortable in your own skin and that makes all of the difference in the world. Thanks, man. I just shared a picture of us recently talking about how everyone needs a Kev, somebody that introduces you and you feel like you're a billion bucks. <laughs> Every time I see you and we're in a group of people and they like, yo, Raf, come and introduce you to these people. I'm like, oh my God. And you're speaking. I'm like, is that me? <laughs> Thanks for being real and for always having my back. Appreciate that. Of course, bro. It's funny. My older sister, she used to date, said something to me that I'll never forget. I think he said this. I was probably like 20. He was like, real people do real things. And bro, if you're doing your thing and you're killing it and you're a good person, I'm going to be like, y'all need to know this, man. Bro, that's just me. Go to Alley. Hopefully something comes from it. But if not, then people got the opportunity to be in the presence of somebody who's genuine and who is real and authentic. Hopefully it inspires them to be the same. So that's how I look at it. Well, that's how I experience you also when people see you and I'm like, yo, you need to talk to Kev. You need to meet Kev. I know when they come to, you're going to be you. You're not going to be somebody that you're not. You're going to give them what you got. I think we don't appreciate that in the age of social media where everybody's this today, next day. We need to appreciate that more. People that will be themselves will be consistent. Definitely. And I appreciate those flowers, brother. So my next question for you is, is as you were building TAP, thinking about coming back to Africa, how did you deal with negative feedback as you were rising and building? What did you think when you first saw it? Was it public? Was it private? Were you prepared for it? Ultimately, how did you overcome it? As creators and storytellers, we all struggle with imposter syndrome. We all struggle with imposter syndrome. Actually, while we are putting together the issue 18, we had to go back to all the issues and they realized the issue one is not there. So I always tell people like when I first saw the issue one, oh my God, it looked so good. But like three months Six months after, once I worked on issue two, it was so terrible that I'm always embarrassed of it. <laughs> Let me tell you this. If your first issue or the first thing that you did doesn't embarrass you, then you haven't grown. Man, I'm always embarrassed by it. But I always tell people, if I didn't go ahead and just make that issue one, there will be no issue two. There will not be issue 10. There will not be issue 18. There will not be all these experiences we've had of telling stories from like 18 African countries. None of that would have happened. That's how I deal with negative feedback. I have a friend of mine, he's a dope, dope photographer. Went through a phase of like three years where he didn't post any work he did because he felt all these things he was seeing on social media, they were so good than his work. So he was kind of feeling like, oh, I can't put this out in the world when everybody else is doing this. And I was like, bro, that's no you. You do, you put out your work and get feedback. And from the feedback you get, you rework them. That's how I deal with that energy and that feeling and not to give Nike any promo, but you just do it. I get up and I just do it. I do it and I have a group of people that I trust and that I believe and who are brutally honest, but also who I know have my back and I send them stuff like, you listen to this. For example, we've just been working on a web series around music producers and we've had like five iterations of it because every time I send it to one of my guys, he's like, oh man, this is terrible. Like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you gotta love your friends for keeping it solid. Yeah, he's like, the first one we did is like, oh man, this is terrible. Like, were you involved in doing this? I was like, man, I'm hard. I was like, of course I was involved. I was like, okay, okay. Okay, maybe we'll work on this, do this, yeah, do yeah, that, yeah. do that. And so now I feel like we have it in a place where we can actually like share with more people and whatnot. But so that's how I deal with it. Create an insider group of people who can see the things you're doing and you can trust their feedback. Of course, you're still the executive of your own story. So you can always override them. Most definitely. And I'm going to be honest with you, like a personal board of directors, right? Like I have my people who I send everything to. I send to 
my god brother. I sent to my homegirl, Alicia. You know, I send my stuff out to a few different people and be like, hey, what you think? And I'm like, just rip it apart. I don't yeah, mind. Yeah. I'd rather you rip it apart. I come back again and have something great than to put something out based on my ego, right? Mm-hmm. One of my big bros, big fraternity brother. The reason why I joined Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, Raphael X Moffat. And I feel like I say this almost every episode. He has this quote. It's correction is direction. Feedback is love. And bro, love all up on me. Give me that feedback. I'm going to write that. I'm going to write that. Write it, bro. I'll send it to you. I'll text it to you. But it really matters when you're thinking about how do I become better, bro? You can't get better and build in a silo or in a vacuum. You have to take feedback. And you have to find people you respect and admire and sneak in there in whatever they are doing, find a way to collaborate with them, work with them. That's what we just did with Afriport, you know? I was like, I feel like I've had a front row seat in like the work that you guys have been doing. And so I was like, I got to work with these people that like, want to understand the podcasting space in Africa and who is better to go to than these guys. I know they're going to be real. I know that they've done their work. They've done their homework. And so find people you respect and who you admire their work and work with them, collaborate. They say that collaboration happens at the top. That's why once you start collaborating, that's when you know you're at the top ones. If you can put your name out with Cave, if you can collaborate, that's how you know that, oh, I got something too. So if you're not collaborating yet, just know you're at the bottom. It is not collaborating. Competition is only at the bottom. It was funny is I was on the phone with Eric Thomas. He had said that. I remember I had called him. So the funny thing about it is, you know, I used to be like real big in motivational speaking. That was like my thing. That's what I did full time for like 10, 11 years. He was somebody who I wanted to work with. Who I was working on getting in contact with. Finally got in contact with him. He says, oh, you know what? I'm up early in the morning at this time, et cetera, et cetera. He had me call him at that time, like 5, 6 a.m. And we were on the phone. He was like, yeah, man, these are the things that I'm up to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He was like, you know, um, you know, he was like, I remember him saying, he said, amateurs compete, experts collaborate. collaborate. I was just like, say less. I'll never forget that. But he definitely said that to me on the phone. So it was dope. For you, what are some things that you wish you knew before becoming a founder of a media company and even moving back to Africa? I wish I knew that as much as money is not everything, money is probably like 50% of everything. I didn't pay attention to, I guess, because I don't come from money. I didn't grow up around money. I didn't really know who understand what money does. I'll give you an example. There's some ideas that we had for like five years ago and then we were pitching them to like, I would say any names, like one of the big media platforms in the world. This is like five years ago. They didn't have a presence on the continent. We're like, we can do this, do that for you guys. So we can work together on this. And they're like, nah, we're not interested. Just last year or two years, they reached out and they were like, oh, can you guys be part of this project? Technically the same thing that we pitched them five years ago. And so I'm always like, if we had the resources, the muscles to actually do those things ourselves, we would be like five years ahead, 10 years ahead. So I wish I knew or understood the power of financial muscles before early on. And then secondly, if I would start and I'm started other things that are not really tapped, but I wish I knew that if you have ambition, don't start anything by yourself or get a co-founder. This startup business, entrepreneurship is brutal. It's hard. So don't do it by yourself. And also you can't know everything. Some of us are good creative directors. Others are good financial directors. Know and understand that you need money and understand where or how you're going to get money. And then when the rubber meets the road, don't go in by yourself. Get someone else.
just to come along one or two people i think you're gonna go faster you're gonna go further and the pressure is gonna be less if you have another person or two along with you yeah those are the things that i've been thinking about Create Your Life family, this conversation with Ross has been so amazing and insightful that we've had to break it up into two different episodes. So please listen to episode 206 for part two of this amazing conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast, but especially on Afropods. And make sure to share with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to info at CYL series. The Create Your Life series is executive produced by myself, Kevin Y. Brown, and produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and team. This episode has been recorded at Kofisi Studios in Nairobi, Kenya. And as always, until next time, create your life, feed your ambition. Create your life, Africa. This episode was brought to you by PodcastLaundry.com. I love Podcast Laundry. It provides a real solution to free up my time. And time is the only resource that we cannot get back. Podcast Laundry was created with love to help other fellow busy podcasters free up time so that they could do more of what they love, whether that's traveling, time with friends and family, or working on other ventures. If you want to free up your time, then have Podcast Laundry do the dirty work of note-taking, graphic creation, editing, show tagging, and uploading for you. Go to PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. And remember to use code CYLS. That's PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273.